let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for our Lord Jesus' death for our sins and we thank you for the Lord's Supper which he has given us so that we can remember him in his death. Uh, we pray that you will give us understanding of what your apostle teaches about the Lord's Supper so that we would share in it for good or the strengthening of our faith, the assurance of our hope and for an ever-renewed knowledge of our Lord Jesus' love for us. Help me to teach your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, even the Mass, uh, different names for the service to remember Jesus' death with bread and wine, a practice common to nearly all Christian denominations over the long history of the Christian Church. Uh, yet that service is also a source of controversy about its content and meaning. For example, do the bread and wine get changed into the real body and blood of Jesus, as the Catholics claim? Or are we offering a sacrifice to God in this meal so that the minister really is a priest? The existence of controversy is the first reason to pay close attention to what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 11, the only passage that speaks directly about this common church practice. In the face of competing claims, what should we believe about the content and purpose of the supper? But there are two other reasons to pay attention to 1 Corinthians 11. As you heard, as 1 Corinthians 11 was read, you can make a real mess of the Lord's Supper. You can come together, verse 17, for worse, not for better. You can get it so wrong, verse 20, that even though you think you are celebrating the supper, you are not, but verse 29 and 30, you're actually exposing yourself to great danger by abusing the supper. We need to understand what we're doing in the Lord's Supper so we don't fall into judgment. And the third reason we need to understand what we're doing in the supper is that we celebrate the supper frequently here, monthly, and we need to know its encouragement. Those things we do regularly and often have a significant role in shaping our understanding of the Christian faith and our practice of the Christian life. If our understanding of the supper is correct, then our practice of the supper can be a powerful encouragement to our Christian faith and life, a means by which God encourages and nurtures our relationship with him and with each other. So because of controversy amongst Christians, because of the role the supper plays in our own congregational life and because it's possible to get the supper disastrously and dangerously wrong, let's pay attention to what we're taught here so that we can say, answer these questions. Why is the Lord's Supper such a universal practice? Where does it come from? What does it actually consist of? Who is it for? How do we share in it correctly? Why is it something we can be so thankful for? Well, the only reason uh, we have Paul's description of the supper 
is that the Corinthians were making such a mess of it and Paul is plainly not pleased with what they're doing. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you. I do not praise you. So bad is their behaviour, whatever they claim, that it is not the Lord's Supper that they're eating or the Lord's meal. Uh, What were they doing then that provoked this harsh response from Paul? Well, the problem, like many problems we've met from chapter 1 on, appears to be divisions in the congregation, verse 18, and these divisions finding expression in their practice of the Lord's Supper. See, in Corinth, the Lord's Supper was celebrated as part of a larger meal when the whole church came together. But some were going ahead and eating before others came, making what should be a shared meal into a private meal which excluded others. And at that meal, eating their own provisions, some would overindulge while others went hungry, verse 21. These differences in people's experience of the meal are thought to reflect not just greed, but the socioeconomic divisions, the differences in wealth and status that existed in the Corinthian congregation. You see, the meal would have been held in the home of one of the wealthier members of the congregation, for only the wealthy had homes that would fit the whole church. And it would be natural for the wealthy person as the host to treat as special those who were his peers, wealthy like him or his clients, perhaps even to seek to demonstrate his status by the abundance of his provision for them. And so they would be favoured guests who'd get the first pick of the food on offer and get lots with others, those outside the dining room, which would have been relatively small, getting little. Moreover, the wealthy had more leisure as well as resources, so they could arrive earlier, giving them more time to indulge themselves, to get merry. The poor and the slaves who had less food to bring or none would also arrive later when they were released from their work, when most or all the food had gone. And they were also the people who could never return the hospitality of the hosts and so outside the circle of dining companions and were people whose opinion didn't matter amongst the status conscious. You see, many uh, were seeing the Lord's Supper as just an ordinary meal where their normal social conventions governed how they conducted themselves. A time for the rich and favoured to satisfy their hunger and thirst and enhance their standing with their peers while the poor could be neglected and go without. And the rich probably saw nothing wrong with how they were conducting themselves. In fact, they probably thought that they were being generous in even letting all these people gather in their homes in providing even some leftovers for them. But Paul is horrified. Horrified that they would accept the conventions of a society that thought the cross foolish as the standard for their interactions horrified at the selfish thoughtlessness that was preoccupied with satisfying themselves while ignoring the needs of others. Their behaviour, says Paul, was despising the church of God. That is, they were treating the gathering 
as if it was their own social gathering, just a human get-together, showing no awareness that this was God's gathering, one he had brought into existence through the death of his son, precious to him, and one to be conducted by his rules. And they were, says Paul, shaming those poor believers who have nothing. So humiliating those whom God had honoured by inviting them to share in the Lord's meal because he had chosen them to be his. Now to help them see how inappropriate their behaviour was, especially at the Lord's Supper, Paul now takes them back to the basics, back to the origin and content of the Lord's Supper. His point is that if you understand what the Lord's Supper is about, you will understand to appropriately, rightly share in it and how necessary it is to act in love to your brothers and sisters who share in the meal with you. But before we look at verses 23 to 26, just recognise this one fact. You can meet in church. You can meet for worse and not for good. Where your behaviour conforms to the world, to the values of your society and not to the gospel, where you act thoughtlessly and selfishly towards your fellow believers, you are meeting for ill and not for good. So what do we need to know about the supper? I receive from the Lord says the apostle, what I also passed on to you. And the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Firstly, we need to know that what Paul teaches the Corinthians and us here comes from the Lord himself. It's not made up not a practice people devised because they thought it would be helpful. Its origin is with Jesus, which speaks of the importance and the authority of what Paul now writes. This teaching is from our Lord, and so it's binding on all Christians everywhere. That's why it's universal. And given by Jesus, we should know Actually, the Lord's Supper matters to Jesus. It was important to him that his followers have this practice. And secondly, we're told that this meal was instituted by Jesus on the night he was betrayed. That is, the Lord Jesus created the supper for us at the last supper, the last meal he had with his disciples before he was betrayed, arrested, tried, and executed the next day. The timing emphasises the importance of this meal to our Lord Jesus. You see, he knew he was about to die, yet on that last night he was actually thinking of us and wanted us to have a way of remembering him. Now think of that. His last night before that awful crucifixion, and he wasn't just thinking of himself. Many of us would be just preoccupied with ourselves if we thought we would die the next day. And he wasn't just thinking of those around him. He was thinking of all those who would come to trust him through believing the apostles' witness 
to Jesus. And that includes us. And the timing also tells us that Jesus gave this instruction in the context of sharing a Passover meal with his followers because that's what the Last Supper was, a Passover meal. And that's important because it helps us understand what the Lord Jesus is doing. You see, what was the Passover meal, a meal still shared by Jews today? Well, the Passover meal was a meal of lamb, unleavened bread and bitter herbs which God commanded the Israelites to share every year at the time of their exodus from Egypt, to share this meal, to remember how God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt by the death of a lamb, by their homes being covered by its blood, the blood placed on the lintels of the, of the doorways into their homes, by their homes being covered by the blood of the lamb, so the destroying angel would pass over them, so they would be spared death and so rescued from slavery for God to make them his own people in covenant relationship with himself at Sinai. Now, the Passover meal had a story to go with it that explained the meaning of the various parts of the meal in relation to God's rescue of Israel. And that explanatory story, which had been developed by the time of Jesus, actually had its origin in God's command that the Israelites explain to their children why they had this meal. So in Exodus 12, we read in relation to the Passover, God saying through Moses, verse 25, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. That's the Passover. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the Passover meal was a meal where the ingredients symbolised something of their experience of salvation and where they were meant to tell the story of what had happened to explain what those symbols meant. And where the meal was shared in with faith, those who ate the meal knew themselves included in that rescue. And so we read in Deuteronomy 16, I'll read from verse 1. Set aside the month of Abib and observe the Passover to the Lord your God because the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night in the month of Abib. Sacrifice to the Lord your God a Passover animal from the herd or flock in the place where the Lord chooses to have his name dwell. Do not eat leavened bread with it. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread with it, the bread of hardship, because you left the land of Egypt in a hurry so that you may remember for the rest of your life the day you left the land of Egypt. And again, verse 6, sacrifice the Passover animal at the place where the Lord your God chooses to have his name well. Do this in the evening as the sun sets at the time of day you departed from Egypt. You notice there the Lord talks about them leaving Egypt. You left the land of Egypt. You left, you departed from Egypt. But to whom is Moses speaking them? Speaking then. Whom is he calling to remember the day you left the land of Egypt? Most of the people to whom Moses is speaking on the plains of Moab had never been in Egypt. 
the Exodus generation, except Caleb and Joshua, had perished in the wilderness. And these are their children, most of them, most of them born since they'd left Egypt. But Moses is saying that deliverance from Egypt was their deliverance. And they and every subsequent generation of Israel are included in God's rescued people by remembering the exodus, by obediently sharing in the Passover as the meal that remembered their deliverance. Now, it's in this context that the Lord Jesus gives his followers what can be thought of as a new Passover meal, a new meal with a new story to remember a new and greater rescue. Not from oppression in Egypt, from one evil at one time in history by the death of the Lamb, but rescue from the root of all oppressions, the slavery that's entrapped our whole race, rescued from sin and death by the death of the Lamb of God, Christ, our Passover Lamb. This is a new meal that, like the Passover, includes all those who share in it with faith in that rescue. But thirdly, what does Jesus actually give us as this new meal? Well, Jesus, as you heard, gives us actions and words that we are to keep on repeating at Jesus' command until he comes again. The Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The actions concern the distribution to all the disciples present of bread and a cup of wine. So this is a very simple symbolic meal, a meal far easier to prepare than the Passover, far less expensive and far more universally available, a meal that's now right for all nations. And what do the words Jesus speaks to accompany his actions mean? How do they interpret for us his actions, interpret for us the bread and the wine? Well, Jesus' words make the bread and the wine symbols of his death to come the next day. Is in this, this is my body, plainly means represents, is a sign of, it has to be so because Jesus is standing there in front of them, right? They're not likely to think this is Jesus and this is Jesus. This is my body, stands for, represents. And by speaking of the bread and the cup as body and blood, Jesus is speaking of the giving of his whole self in death and making it clear that his death to come will be a sacrificial death, a death that will actually atone for our sin, means that God's judgment will pass over us now and at the last day. And he says this meal is for you, that is, for his followers, for us. And then in verse 25, 
recalling the blood that inaugurated the first covenant in Exodus 24 and the prophecy of a new covenant in Jeremiah. He says his death will bring into existence, make operative this new covenant. And brothers and sisters, that is great good news. You see, a covenant is an assured relationship with God where God commits himself to acting in a certain way towards those with whom he is in covenant and the people with whom he enters into this relationship commit themselves to respond in the way God calls for in the covenant. Now, the wonder of this new covenant is, as you heard, that God commits himself, verse 34, to forgive all our sins, to remember them no more. That is, those who relate to God in the new covenant will never have their sins, their disobedience, called to mind by God in his dealings with us. And in this covenant, God commits us, well, commits himself to change us so that we can actually live as his covenant people. Israel, though they had the law, failed again and again and again because the law was out there, not directing their wills. God says he will now write it on our hearts. He will change us so that we will will to do his will. Jesus is teaching us that his death will bring us into this assured relationship with God based on the forgiveness of our sins, that our sins have been atoned for, where all our sins, past, present and future, are forgiven and where God will be the God of those who trust the Lord Jesus forever. And that is good news. See, these words of Jesus, this is my body for you, are a promise for all who come after those disciples gathered in the upper room that those who share in this meal believing Jesus, believing his death is for us and brings us into the new covenant, are included in the salvation the Lord Jesus achieved in his death, the death his words speak of, and interpret to us. And fourthly, this is a meal Jesus wants his followers to keep on sharing in together. Do this, he says, and the sense there is keep on doing it. It's continuous. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we share in this meal not to repeat the sacrifice of Jesus as Roman Catholics claim, but to remember his sacrifice. You see, Catholic theology teaches that the Mass is a repetition in an unbloody way of Jesus' sacrifice. It's something, in a sense, that the priest and the congregation offer to God. Not so. Our Lord died once for all upon the cross. As the author of Hebrews says, Christ has entered into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, 
He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. See, having died once for all on Calvary, Jesus doesn't need to be re-offered. No, he makes the benefit of his sacrifice available to all through all time by this meal where it is received with faith. It is something he offers to us. It's his hand that stretches out towards us and says, this is my body, not something we offer to him. And that's actually the sense of that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Don't those who eat the sacrifice participate, share in the altar? You see, sacrifice, and we're very unfamiliar with sacrifice because Jesus' sacrifice made once was so effective we don't need to offer them. But sacrifice was a feature of both Jewish and pagan religions. And in both, for some kinds of sacrifice, the worshippers would eat some part of the sacrificed animal and in eating a meal that was seen as provided by the God in the presence of the God, they were thought to share in the benefits of that sacrifice, in the favour, the grace or the atonement that that sacrifice obtained. See, Paul is picturing the Lord's Supper where the bread and the cup are signs of Christ offered in sacrifice to God for our sake. He's picturing the Lord's Supper as the meal that followed the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. By eating and drinking with faith, believing Jesus' words, we become those who share in the benefit of the sacrifice Christ made once on the cross. As such, the body and blood of Jesus are something we receive, not offer, but in receiving them, we are also receiving all that Christ has obtained for his people by his sacrifice on Calvary. There is no repetition of the sacrifice. Instead, Christ perpetuates the meal that allows us to share in the benefits of the sacrifice once made on Good Friday. And when we see this, we start to understand what it is to remember the Lord Jesus, to do this in remembrance of him. Remembering is not mere recollection. You know, it's not turning up and say, oh, now I remember Christ died for my sins. Yes, I'd let it slip. No, no. To remember is firstly to believe the gospel that Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried and was raised on the third day. And believing the gospel, to know yourself in that upper room, being addressed personally, by Jesus when he says, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And it is personal. 
You see, when I'm speaking up here, you might think I'm speaking to the person next to you. But when Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat, it's actually you he's talking to. And you either have the choice then to say, no, i got that, or you can respond to him speaking to you individually. That is part of its great benefit. He is talking to you. To remember is to know yourself in that room being addressed to you. To know that he's actually including you in those for whom he's died. Those for whom he has won salvation those who will be included in that new covenant. And, of course, to remember is to know that in this meal, just as Jesus was talking to you then in that upper room, he is now the living Jesus, the Jesus who reigns, offering you in the bread and cup a share in his death and all that his death has achieved for his people. To remember is to know he was speaking to you then and to know that he, alive, ruling, is speaking to you now. And that as surely as you eat the bread and drink the cup in believing obedience to his call to take and eat, so assuredly his death was for you, purchased your salvation, your rescue, from the oppression of sin and death. And knowing that, we can start to see what a tremendous gift our Lord Jesus gave his people, gave us, when he gave us this meal and commanded its repetition. We can start to see its greatness when we think of what the meal says of the Lord Jesus, what it says of us and what it says of our continuing life in this world until he comes. You see... This meal says of our Lord Jesus that he gave himself for us, that he has loved us in the greatest way possible. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Oh, and this meal reminds us that he is our saviour by his death, a great and forever saviour who has dealt fully and finally with our enemies, sin and death, for in the new covenant our sins are remembered no more. And this meal says he is our living saviour who will return. We eat and drink. Often as you eat this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's our living saviour who will return. And our living host who continues to provide for his people all they need for peace with God, provide for them through his word of promise. You know, to be reminded again and again of who Jesus is and what he has done for you, well, that's for our good, isn't it? For our thankfulness, assurance and hope. And sharing in this meal reminds us of the truth about ourselves. It actually says we are all sinners. We've all rebelled against the living God. We are all in need of forgiveness, in need of that sacrifice that will take away our sin. And so we are dependent 
on what Jesus has done once for all on the cross forever. That is the source of our life and hope forever. And the meal says we are saved only by trusting him, only as we eat and drink in response to his promise, that we are saved as we receive what he offers, not by what we offer or do, saved by grace. Now, there are heaps of sermons in that, but it's actually wonderful to know. It is freeing to know that it's not your performance, but his kindness, his grace that brings you into that new covenant by his offering of himself to you. And it reminds us that we are all equal around this table. As you heard in 1 Corinthians 10, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. You see, none of us brings anything to this table except our need, and all are welcomed on the same basis, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And so this table, this meal, humbles the proud and exalts the humble to sit with the King of Kings. In fact, it assures all who share in it with faith that we are loved and assuredly forgiven. And isn't that a good way to live in this world? All that's so good to know and to know it's not just idea, to know it in a sense tangibly in eating and drinking. That's in a sense the power of the supper. Words can go here and there. Skip off your ears. But you actually have to take you have to engage your whole body, taste and touch, sight and ears in this. Our Lord is being kind to us. He's condescending to our weakness to engage us with his death for us and to assure us that he saves us. And this meal also teaches us about the nature of our life in the world until our Lord returns. You see, it holds every time before us Jesus' example that the way of the cross in obedience to the Father is the way to glory. And it reminds us that we should not expect it to be different for us in this world. If that was the way to glory for the Son, that is the way to glory for us, trusting the Father, doing his will, even if we suffer. Oh, and this meal reminds us too that we have to share what we've received, that forgiven, we must forgive, that love, we must live lives of love, for that's what we're called to as Jesus followers. And the table tells us we are not expected to live this life alone. The table makes us conscious that we are a people, that we're saved by being included in God's new covenant together with all those who believe in the Lord Jesus, people we are called to love as Christ has loved us. And hearing that we celebrate this meal until he comes reminds us that this world's not permanent, that we are citizens of another country, the heavenly one that endures forever, that we should not expect to have it all now. And it sets us free from those lies 
that tells us you are meant to get it all, health and wealth, they're meant to get it all, no. No, it says, actually, we are waiting. This meal is just a foretaste of that great and unimaginably, unimaginably joyous meal, the great and heavenly wedding feast of the Lamb, when it will all be ours, as we are all Christ's. Our Lord said, do this in remembrance of me for our good. So what then is it to share in this meal for good or benefit? And we can start to answer that now from our understanding of what the supper is and fill out our answer from Paul's addressing the Corinthian behaviour in verses 27 to 34. But as at the heart of this meal is a promise, faith is essential to right partaking. For that's what promises call for. Promises call for us to believe them. Jesus makes us a promise. This is my body for you. So to share in this real meal rightly, you must be a believer. Have faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's why across church history, it has always been reserved for those who are baptised who have responded to the gospel of Jesus by receiving the outward sign of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. That's always been the case, whatever the confusions of our age. But it must be a faith that understands how the gospel that's proclaimed in the supper, the gospel that says the crucified Lord Jesus saves by his death, a faith that understands how the gospel proclaimed in the supper transforms our relationships with each other. And that is what Paul addresses in verses 27 to 34. Having explained what the supper is, he tells the Corinthians and us how we should share in it. And he starts with this serious warning. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord kind of the most sacred things in the universe. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner, that is, in a way that's inconsistent with the supper's nature and purpose. To think that it's your own meal, which is all about satisfying your hunger or demonstrating your importance. To think it's a, a place to reinforce social divisions. To eat and drink unconscious that the Lord Jesus is the host and so his will must govern all we do in this meal, including what he wills for the way we treat other believers. To eat and drink unaware that the bread and the cup are signs of his death given for the purpose of remembering him. To do those things would make us guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, of treating the death of the Son of God with contempt reckoning it of no account, and that is serious, as you heard in verse 30. This is why many of you are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Serious. So how can that guilt be avoided by the Corinthians and us? <coughs> well, verse 28, Paul says, let a person examine herself or himself. 
and especially examine ourselves to make we sure we eat and drink, verse 29, recognising the body. So here is a call for thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness about our motives and behaviour as we share in the Lord's Supper. Do we come recognising that we're sinners whose only hope is to share in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus? Do we come trusting him and so receiving with thankfulness his offering of himself under the sign of bread and wine? Do we come recognising that this meal is all about Jesus and what he has achieved in his death and not about us or our appetites? And as body has a double reference to the body offered to us and the body created. The people of God who are one body by sharing in the one death of our Lord Jesus. As body has a double reference, we ought to ask, do we come knowing that those we eat with are loved by our Lord, welcomed by him at his table? a table at which we are all equal, whatever our differences in age, sex, wealth, education, race, whatever. Do we come knowing that those we are with are loved by our Lord and so should be treated with honour and respect and thoughtful love? To come otherwise, showing, as some Corinthians were doing, contempt for poorer believers using the table as an opportunity to maintain and display worldly divisions, is to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And it is a serious judgment, judgment that falls on those who treat the holy things of the holy God as common. And remember 1 Corinthians 3, God's church is holy. So we might be shocked by verse 30 speaking of those who are sick and ill and fallen asleep, that is, died. Shocked that God is active amongst his people to judge, to make them confront their sin. Shocked that God cares so much about his church that we might come so casually to. Cares so much about what the world treats with contempt. But God does care. And Paul tells us God brings this preliminary judgment on believers so that we will avoid the greater and final condemnation that will fall on the world, on those who persist in rebellion against God. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. But it does matter to God. And we could avoid this painful discipline if we would listen if we would let the gospel, not the world, shape our behaviour, especially the gospel's call to love Jesus' followers as he has loved us. So examine yourselves. I mean, that's what we call on you to do each time we celebrate the supper. We usually do it the week before to give you time to do it. Do you take the opportunity? Do you take the opportunity, for example, to ask, Am I trusting the Lord Jesus and trusting him, relying on his death for my sins? Do I know I am forgiven? And so am I living the grateful, joyful lives of those who are forgiven and at peace with God? That's a good question. 
another. Am I treating my brothers and sisters as those loved by my Lord, honoured by him? Or am I living thoughtless of their needs? Am I shaming them by my indifference or by my conduct? Another, am I rejoicing in forgiveness but holding a grudge against a brother or sister, refusing to forgive? If that's the case, you should act. Am I saying perhaps that sin is so serious that it can only be dealt with by the Son of God? And that's what you are saying when you come to the table. Your sins are so serious it can only be dealt with by the Son of God dying. You're saying that and yet refusing to repent of sin, keeping on doing things that God forbids. Am I treating the church just as a social occasion? and not engaging with God's purpose in saving a people, that we become a holy people who encourage each other to love and good works. They're all good questions to ask yourself when you examine yourself. And having given them that warning and instruction, Paul then gives them some simple instructions that would show thoughtfulness about each other and about the purpose of the meal. And I'll read from the ESV, verse 33. So then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, wait for one another. Wait is by far a better translation than welcome. Wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you'll not come under judgment. Wait for one another. So simple, isn't it? He's saying to the rich, Don't act in the way your society would endorse. No. Treat your poorer brothers and sisters as Jesus teaches you to. Simple, isn't it? Wait. But it was actually socially revolutionary. Like sharing the supper with believers of different races in a racially segregated society. Wait. And eat before you come. So you won't be tempted by hunger to just go ahead and focus on yourself so that having eaten, you can actually eat the bread and share in the cup for the purpose our Lord gave them to us and remember him to your good. It's a reminder, isn't it, that we can easily be derailed from engaging with the things of God, can't we? You know, a little hunger, a little tiredness, a little upset, and our minds stray. And we sin by treating the things of God as incidental, not really important. Say a word that can be ignored, a supper that can be taken thoughtlessly. Simple. Eat, sleep, resolve before you come. And then come and attend to God's word and promise. Come and share in the good gift of the Lord's Supper. For it is the Lord's good gift to us believers given for our good, assuring us that we're saved by grace, forgiven sinners, saved by a great and loving Saviour, saved by by believing the promise, not by our works, saved completely, our sins remembered no more, welcomed now by our Lord and able to look forward to his return and the great feast then. Given for our good, given to keep our life together sound, 
reminding us that sin's serious and so must be turned away from, that our brothers and sisters are precious and so to be loved, that we are all equal around the table and so there is no place for the pride that dismisses or has no concern for any of our brothers and sisters. Oh, and yes, a meal that keeps us looking forward to the day of our Saviour's return and proclaiming to the world that at the heart of our life together is the gospel that the crucified Jesus saves and the crucified Jesus is the living Lord. Now, if you're not yet a believer, but wonder, as you should, at the thoughtfulness and love of Jesus seen in this move, if you see here maybe for the first time that Jesus really did know what he was doing in going to the cross, that he knew what it meant, that he knew he would have a people across the centuries. Well, why don't you get to know Jesus better? Because he is good. And you can do that by letting us know that you want to know him better and we'd be happy to read the Bible with you or encourage you to come and do a course that looks through one of the little Gospels of Jesus. You're not yet a believer, but you're actually saying that Jesus knew what he was doing when he went to his death. Well, get to know him. But if you're a believer, use this provision of your Saviour for you. It is our Lord who commands this meal to be repeated. So come regularly to the table, month by month, as we celebrate it. Come thoughtfully, knowing what you're doing, having examined your life and mended your relationships as far as it depends upon you. And come thankfully, thankful to receive from your Saviour's hand. And think of this, to receive from your Saviour's hand the Lord who created all things, to receive from your Saviour's hand himself given for you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would write your word on our hearts. And knowing that this meal, the Lord's Supper, is a remembrance of our Lord's death for us, we pray that we would make use of it with faith so that we know it's good and are renewed in assurance of our forgiveness, renewed in knowledge of your love for us, renewed in thankfulness and hope, renewed in a determination to turn from sin, renewed in our commitment to love our brothers and sisters as you have loved us, giving yourself for us. Our Father, we pray in your mercy that throughout our lives, as we wait for the great marriage feast of the Lamb, we would be people who would meet for good and not for real. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.